Welcome to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast, where we talk with some of the greatest names from the stadium and stage about the music and sports that shaped their lives. I'm John Adams. In my years of working in the music and sports arenas, I've experienced firsthand the surprising connections between these two industries. Together, through this podcast, we will explore this crossover relationship. All of our podcasts have an accompanying Spotify playlist that showcases the music we discuss with each of our guests. Search for The Score on Spotify. Today's guest is the lead vocalist for a band that stormed the U.S. airwaves as part of the British invasion of the 1960s. His band, The Zombies, climbed the U.S. charts in 1964 with their first massive hit, She's Not There. The Zombies stood out from a crowded pop radio scene with jazzy minor chords and memorable singles that are still staples of radio airplay. Our guest's breathy and unique vocals became part of the Zombies' signature sound that helped them become more popular in the U.S. than at home in the U.K. We will speak with vocalist Colin Blundstone right after this. Hi, this is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Right now, the coronavirus is affecting all of us, but for communities of color, the impact is especially devastating. Sadly, this pandemic amplifies the real-life consequences of existing economic and social inequalities. That's why the NBA is partnering with the National Urban League to help inform, represent, and empower communities of color. This is a time for all of us to help all of us, and the more we understand the issues, the more we will be able to solve them. Now, more than ever, we need to be in this together. Be safe, be informed, and get engaged. And welcome back to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast. Joining us is the lead vocalist from the Zombies, Colin Blundstone. Colin, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, John. It's great to be with you. I wanted to start, if we could, in your formative years, when you when you met the rest of the guys in the zombies, you were in grade school, grammar school at the time. Is that right? That's right. We were about 15 um, when we first met in 1961. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was quite interesting in that I didn't really know most of the other guys. I only really knew one guy who I sat next to at school. That was my... That was my audition. You know, I sat next to this guy in school, and he said, you've got a guitar, haven't you? And I said, yes. He said, do you want to be in a band? And I thought, well, why not? And that was my audition, you know. Um, So I was actually meeting um, a a group of strangers uh, that very first Saturday morning in St. Albans in Hertfordshire. It's just north of London. And... um, who knew that what was going to happen? We'd, we would still be playing sort of 60 years later. Who was the best athlete of the bunch? Well, I think, um, I think really I was the only one who was really interested in sports. And um, if I was going to do a more sort of glamorous profession, uh, I, I don't think I was really good enough to be a professional athlete. But I would have thought I'd more likely be an athlete than a professional musician. I, that thought never crossed my mind at 15 years of age. You know, I was kind of like, um, I was the county champion in athletics, which probably is a little bit like a state champion in the state. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, was a, I was a fast runner. 
So was it track and field uh, that you were that you excelled at, or was it uh, was it uh, another sport? It was anything really that involved running fast. Mm -hmm. I I was a sprinter, and um, but also at my school we played rugby, which is a little bit like American football. Mm -hmm. And because I could run fast, I, I was I was quite good at rugby as well. And most of the other guys weren't particularly interested in sport. I, I don't, from, from memory anyway, it's a long time ago, but I don't think they were, they were interested in watching it, some of them, but not particularly in playing it. Somebody told me that you were going to be a rugby player after the zombies broke up in, six, was it 67 that the zombies broke up or 68? We broke up in the summer of 67. Okay. And um, I tried to play a bit of rugby all the way through um, the zombies. In fact, I just remembered the first time we met, I, when we were 15, um, I had a broken nose and two <laughs> black eyes and strapping across the front of my face. So I, I obviously looked a bit like a zombie. <laughs> and they were all hoping, because they didn't know me. Uh, we arrived there. There was one guy I knew, and he was late. We were early. And they didn't know me, and they were all thinking, God, I hope he's not turned up to be in the band because he looked really rough. And, uh, yeah, I had a pretty badly broken nose. And um, I kept playing rugby at school. I mean, I was at school for another three years after that. And and then when we the band turned professional in 1964, I played one, only one serious game of rugby, and then got in the shower, got in the car, and drove to a, a professional gig with the zombies. <laughs> and I was so tired at the end of that. You know, play rugby, get knocked about. And then quite a long drive, and then play a concert, and then drive home. And I thought I can I could never do that again. <laughs> it was a little bit crazy, really, because you know I could have broken my arm or broken my leg in the match, and uh, it makes it a bit difficult to do a show in the evening after that. So I only <laughs> did that once while the band were touring. I'm sh I'm sure Rod would have had words with you if you came with a broken arm. <laughs> <laughs> he would be quite strict at times. He he would have had. Definitely serious. I would have had a serious talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> now, are you uh, uh, for those in the U.S. Uh, that are listening? There are really two schools of thought or two leagues to rugby. There's union, and then there's league rugby. So, which yeah. Yeah. which school of thought are you with? Well, um, I enjoy both of them, but I, I played rugby union. Okay. Roughly speaking, the south of the country plays. All of the country plays union. But uh, rugby league is mostly in the north. What position did you play in rugby? Well, because I was fast, I often ended up on the wing, so that would be like a wide receiver. Okay. But uh, I preferred to play in the back row of the scrum, uh, like where you have a line of scrimmage in American football. Uh, in in the scrums in England are slightly different; they're more compact, and so there's three people at the front, two behind, and then three behind them. Mm -hmm. And they all um, scrummage down. And the guys at the back are supposed to be the, the fastest players. And so they would be like the defensive team in American football. And one of the main things that we're supposed to do is to knock down um, the fast runners, the tricky runners, in mm -hmm. the other side. And I, I like playing there because um, you're in the game all the time. And um, uh, when you're the other position I play is back out on the wing when you're supposed to be receiving the ball and scoring tries. 
there is, if the weather's bad, you can just fuck out there <laughs> and you never get the ball. You just get frozen. You know, it's um, it's not it's not such a, a good afternoon. Um, so yeah, I used to play open side wing forward. That's what I enjoyed most mm-hmm. of all. One of the things that I love about rugby is the massive amount of respect that the players have for the referees and then for the opponent, uh, the opponents as well. That's something you don't see in a whole generally, lot of sports. Yeah, but generally speaking, that is true. It's just traditional that with the referee, you would always call him sir, and you, you know, you would, you might question something, but it would be done very respectfully. Normally, he would expect to talk to the captain and not, not just the player. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they can be very strict. And with regard to the other players, it's quite a dangerous game because there's no padding, but it's yeah. it's full on tackling. And if you're not respectful, someone is going to get seriously hurt. And it does happen, but I think you have to you have to be seriously play by the rules and and also the spirit of the game. As soon as someone starts getting too aggressive, you know, if the red mist comes down, it can get very dangerous. And a lot of people in the U.S. are are have this backlash toward American football because of the injuries, because we're so padded up that you're going full speed and the tackling ends up being just a brutal force rather than technique. And in rugby, there's a lot, it seems as though there is a lot more technique because nobody is wearing pads. There is no level of safety there. So you want to be able to bring the person down, but also do it in a safe way. Well, absolutely. I mean, in, more recently, rugby has changed. We're tackling now compared to when I played, however many years ago that was, um, it is, it's much, much harder now. And I, I think they've probably taken on a lot of the technique from American football. And of course, the, the downside of all that padding and wearing a helmet and everything is that you are able to tackle much harder without injuring yourself. And so in, in some ways, instead of making it safer, you could make an argument that it makes it uh, more dangerous because yeah. you're padded up and you've got a helmet. And that helmet can be used as a, a weapon as well. But in, at rugby, um, at the top level now, is incredibly hard. The players are all much bigger. Um, you know, they're all 200 pounds, and even the small ones are 200 pounds. <laughs> and there's a, a general attitude now that people try to run through the opponents rather than round them. When I played, you try to avoid the opposition, <laughs> try to run round them. But now they try to run through them. And it's, it's just a different way of playing the game. It's, at the top level, it is incredibly hard. And everybody's fast as well. They're, they're, they're 200 plus fa- pounds and they can all move. Oh, yes. They can all move. And uh, as a sort of trying to tackle some of those guys, and um, I mean, I've stood next to some of the big international players, and some of them are nearly seven foot tall. And uh, you know, it's like who put the sun out? What what happened? There's, there's no light in these people around you. And um, they're they're pretty impressive athletes. And do you have a favorite team or a favorite athlete? Oh, at rugby, uh, I I supported a team over here called Saracens. They were in North London, and they were our local. Uh, um, big size, you know, um, mm-hmm. and and actually one of the players that I played with at my uh, at my level 
made it into that Saracens team. I, I could have never done that, but I did know someone who played in, in that Saracens team, and they've been extremely successful. Uh, they've won the European Cup, which is all the um, European sides playing that, uh, more than once, and they are a very successful side. Unfortunately, last year they got into trouble with... Um, funds not being I, I think they overpaid the players it was something like that and so they've been uh, they've been relegated into the second division of, of uh, English rugby which is a bit unfortunate but you know I support them anyway so I will be supporting them next year they're a, they're a great side fabulous players and again we are speaking today with lead vocalist of the zombies Colin Blundstone and which uh, sport or stadium has the best atmosphere for fans? Well, Twickenham, the rugby, the rugby stadium, is, is, it's a real experience because people get there early and in the car parks, they have picnics in the car parks, you know, in the back of their SUVs. They open them up and they've got <laughs> champagne and hampers of food. It's, <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's quite something. And uh, traditionally... Uh, uh, the supporters at rugby matches drink quite a lot, so they're quite uh, overt, noisy, and like to sing. And when you go to a game, it, it really is an experience because they sing a lot, and uh, they're very, very loud. So I think seeing an international with England, maybe playing Wales, because the Welsh are great singers, um, you see England and Wales at Twickenham, it's a real experience. And that happens a lot in the in the UK. That a lot of the teams have team songs that the fans sing over and over and over again. That just adds to the atmosphere and to the fandom for each one of those guys in there singing along. It absolutely does. Yeah, and, and strangely enough, uh, rugby hasn't restarted here because of this uh, COVID nineteen situation. Mm-hmm. But soccer has, and um, <clears throat> and what they've done is they're, they're trying to play out the end of their season, I think there was sort of like eight or ten matches that hadn't been played when, when everything was locked down over here. And so they're playing at the end of the season and they're doing it in empty stadiums. It's so weird. Yeah. But they've got to play these games. I, I think, you know, there are all sorts of TV deals and sponsorships that have, that have got to be satisfied. So they have to play these games and we have to know who wins the leagues and uh, and who's going to be relegated and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're playing in front of no one where they would normally be playing in front of 60,000 and 70,000 people. So it's quite strange. But what they've done, it's usually on, on two channels. And on one channel, you have the choice of uh, piped applause. You know, they have a crowd oh. sound uh, on the TV, which is quite interesting. And then on the other channel... There's no noise at all except the players just shouting and, you know, encouraging one another. So it's, it's quite unreal watching a major mm-hmm. soccer game like that uh, with, with um, no one there, no supporters. And which do you prefer? Because both are going to be very different. And you know that no fans are there, so the piped-in sound must sound a little unreal and a, a little bit <laughs> fake. Because it is fake. It does. And I think everyone, but especially the players, but I think everyone would prefer to have a supporters there because mm. they are they're very vocal. And I, I think the game just takes on a whole different meaning when they're supporters. I mean, those 
guys uh, on all those sports, they play much harder when they've got the fans there. Sure. Yeah. It, there's nothing like making a, uh, making a goal or, or, or saving a, 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 making a huge save and then no applause, just an empty, silent I, stadium. I, 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 what can be quite funny is uh, if uh, one of the forwards scores a goal, of course they have, I know they do it in American football too, they have these celebrations when they score. And um, some of them will rush off to the fans, and of course they're not there. So they, they rush off, it's just automatic, you know, it's, it's habit, and they rush off to, you know, to share their jubilation with the yes. fans. And there's and the, no one there. No, so nobody's there to share it. They have to turn around with their tail between their legs and <laughs> sort of back onto the pitch, which is quite funny. Oh gosh! And uh, again, we're we're speaking today with lead vocalist of the Zombies, Colin Blunstone. And to take a little bit of a turn and go into into the music a little bit, um, I, I had to ask, uh, have to ask you something because my dad, when I was listening to music and as a kid, he would play songs for me, and one of them that that he played is "She's Not There," and the second chorus. Um, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she acts, and the color of her hair. There is the biggest gasp for air right there, and I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. It was obviously not planned, but but what was what was happening? Because y- you must have recorded that three or four times, and that was the take that you went, "Yes, that's it." There are, I think, there are breaths all the way through it. But, yes, I mean it. It was used as a kind of an effect, and. Um, you know, they can actually take those breaths out if you want them taken out, but they try to heighten them. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's actually a bit of an... It, it's genuine, mm-hmm. but it's almost... They didn't actually turn them up, but they they worked the tape so that they would be loud. They just... The, the producer, I mean, uh, we were... Uh, I was still 17, I think, when I sang that, so I had very little say in, in the sound of the record, mm. but the the producer thought that it was interesting, maybe a little bit of a hook, and and here we are, fifty years later, sixty years later, still talking about it. So he um he he liked to emphasise oh, that yeah. breath. It's not it's not uh, if you were in the room with me, I don't think it would have been as loud as as it is now. It's just it's been <laughs> treated in a way that that brings that breath out. Yeah, it is very unique, and it does make the track stand out, and it's something that that I listen for every time I hear it now. So it, it, I know that I'm not the yeah, only I think one. It is quite interesting. Yes, it, it, it is quite interesting. I think that our producer is called Ken Jones, and that was the first time we were ever in the studio with him. Yeah. And I think that for maybe the rest of the time we worked with him, which was for the next nearly three years, he was always trying to get that breathy sound. But a lot of that was coming from the studio and not from me, although sometimes he would ask me to try and do that. But um, <laughs> I think, you know, some people like it, and probably some people don't like it, but uh, it, it's not all coming from me. So some of it is actually coming from the studio. I, you know, there's a story I have told before about our first time in the studio. We were in um, Decker Studios in West Hampstead in London, first time in a proper professional studio, and... It, in those days, it was decided that it was a good idea to go in in the evening rather than first thing in the morning, because it was, you know, it was just a cool thing to do to work through the night. And so we arrived at seven o'clock, and unfortunately, the recording engineer 
who was a very good recording engineer, um, he'd been at a wedding all day, and he was incredibly drunk. And <laughs> as the session went on, as the session went on, he got more and more aggressively drunk as well. And it always makes me laugh because here am I, having been in the business for 60 years, I was convinced after about 20 minutes with this guy screaming down the headphones when I was singing, I, I, I thought, this isn't for me, you know. I, I don't think the music business is going to be for me. Because he was just screaming. But then we had a bit of luck and he passed out this guy absolutely cold on the floor. And we had to carry him out. We took him out two flights of stairs, put him in a black taxi, never saw him again. And his assistant took over and his assistant was a guy called Gus Dutton, and that was his first session ever. And Gus went on to be a very good engineer and became one of the top producers, probably the top producer in the world, and he produced all of Elton's early albums, mm -hmm. some of David Bowie's recordings, KTV, many, many others. So he went on to be a really, really successful producer, but his first session was on She's Not There with the Zombies, that's Gus Dutton. To, to add to that, Paul Atkinson, your original guitarist with the Zombies, little known fact, I worked with him when I was at Rhino Records, and he was on the A&R side at Rhino. And um, he made that that transition from the stage to the the label side of life and to the, the A&R world. Um, and he worked with Elton and ABBA and Bruce Hornsby, just a, a litany of, of wonderful artists. I know, he was he was incredibly successful. Um, Paul was really knowledgeable about the business. He had very good ears, and he would, he'd always got time to listen to things, you know. He, uh, he got great stamina. He could listen to track after track after track, and, and then he would pick up on something, and he would see it through. You know, if he saw something that got potential, he would see it through. Um, I, I didn't really see it coming when we were in the band together. I really liked Paul. He was a lovely, lovely bloke. But I didn't see it coming that he would be so successful on the other side of the business. Mm -hmm. um, but he certainly was. One of my favorite albums that I worked on while I was at Rhino was was your release, As Far As I Can See. And before then, it had been quite a while before that that you guys performed as the Zombies. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when the when the Zombies finished in 1967, we all stayed in contact with one another. And in fact. Uh, Rod Argent and Chris White produced some solo albums for me. They produced my first two solo albums, and then Chris mm -hmm. White, the original bass player in The Zombies, produced my third album. Rod Argent produced my sixth solo album. <laughs> you know, we, we kept working together, and um, I also did quite a few charity dates with Rod. And it wasn't till I think, 1999, I had a solo band and some of the guys weren't available for some gigs. And I thought, I just wonder if Rod would fancy coming and playing some dates. And I, I called him and I said, you know, I've got six dates coming up. Is there any chance you would you'd want to play them? And he said, yeah. I was really surprised I didn't think he'd want to do it. Because Rod has been a very, very successful producer over here. Mm -hmm. And so he was working in studios all the time. And he hadn't really toured in, in a long time. And he said, yeah. I'd like to do those six dates, but but no more, just those six dates. And I was thrilled that he'd do the six dates. Hmm. But what happened 
when we started playing together, he enjoyed it so much that those six dates uh, grew into 20 years, uh, 21 years now. Um, we just kept playing. But we didn't use the name The Zombies for six or seven years. We, we, we didn't think it would be right to start with. And what astounded us was there was so much interest in the Zombies repertoire. We honestly took us by surprise. And we were encouraged by audiences, promoters, record companies to play more and more zombie tunes until we were we were playing a zombie show. And we had a talk with the other two, at that point, surviving members, Chris White and Hugh Grundy, because sadly by then Paul had died. And mm-hmm. um, he said, Dad, we're playing a zombie show. How do you feel about us using the name The Zombies? It, it, it explains to people what they're going to see when they when they come in to the to the performance, they're going to see a zombie show, and they said, "Great, go ahead, go ahead and do it." Mm. But it took us about seven years to use the zombie's name. Neither one of us wanted to to start with, but it just got to a point where it, it was getting a bit silly not using the name because. And are you guys still recording? Well, we we started some tracks before the lockdown, so um, we finished uh, three tracks. And Rod has written a couple of other songs that he's managed to get to me. Uh, and I've, I've just been, you know, doing my homework, um, working on those songs by myself. And I would hope that next month, it seems, and all countries are different. They've all got their different uh, yeah. way of approaching this situation. But it seems that next month, everything is going to be a bit more relaxed. And we're hoping that we can get together. Um, next month and continue with the recording and with a bit of luck because unfortunately all our live work has been cancelled or postponed for next year most mm-hmm. of it actually has been postponed so we've got from now until Christmas to work on these songs and with a bit of luck if we can get everyone together um, we should be able to finish the next album oh great great so that so that's nice to have something to look forward to um, when you're able to tour again and you're able to, to, to finally put rubber to the road. Absolutely. I mean, it's always great to have a focus in, in a, a new album. It always gives the tour a bit of an edge. And uh, I would hope that, um, I mean, you can never tell with albums. I always think <laughs> making albums is a little bit like doing a, a painting. You don't know how a painting's going to end up. You don't even know if it's going to be successful. You, maybe you're going to throw this one away. Um, and it's a little bit like that with recording. You never know what's going to happen, but um, you would hope that we can finish an album uh, by Christmas. Uh, taking into account, we've also, we have to write the songs. These are all new songs, mm-hmm. but I would hope it will be done by then. And, and then I think we're, we're due to come over there late February or early March. And, you know, I would hope we would come with a new album. And I did notice that next year is the 50th anniversary of your debut solo album, One Year. And are you going to re-release the album or maybe tour with with uh, with some of that? Well, there, there's, there's talk about celebrating that 50th anniversary. Um, what's been talked about mostly is actually performing it in its entirety. Um, uh, nothing's been decided. It's just a conversation piece mm-hmm. at the moment. But I would think that if we do do some shows, they will try and get uh, a re-release on, on the album as well. The, the slight problem with performing it live is you, you have to have a 
a band there because some of the tracks are played with a band. Sure. And some of the tracks are played with at least a string quintet. I mm-hmm. mean, on the records, they're, they're string orchestras, but it will work with a string quartet or a string quintet, depending mm-hmm. on, on what song. Um, but it suddenly takes on another dimension in terms of transport, oh, you know, hotels, uh, sound equipment. It's, it's a whole other ball game to just traveling with a rock and roll band. Um, but if it's possible, it's, it's a lovely idea to mm-hmm. try and do it. And certainly there are conversations going on at the moment um, with regard to uh, possibly doing it anyway. And that story of Time of the Season being released on on what was really your your last album, and then a year and a half later, the Summer of Love, that really finds this resurgence and quite the audience in the States. Because that song, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, became an enormous hit here first, before the UK. I'll tell you an interesting thing. What you're saying is, is partly right. Uh, but it was never a hit in the UK. Really? It's been a hit in just about every country around <laughs> the world, but Time of the Season was never a hit in the UK. But people know it here because it's been used in many commercials, mm-hmm. it's been in many films, and if, if you talk to a, if you're in a zombie concert and you talk to anyone in the audience, they will think it's a hit record, I guarantee it, but it, it never was. It's really strange. Um, yeah, obviously the band had finished, and um, tradition has it that one DJ in Boise, Idaho, would not stop playing Time of the Season, and it spread onto other stations around him, and that eventually, in, in a way that was possible then, I, I, it may not be possible now, it just spread across the country. But it originally came from this one DJ. I never knew his name, huh. but um, it took us all by surprise, but of course... It was a lovely surprise that, uh, you know, a year or year and a half after we'd finished, we have this huge, huge hit. Number one in Cashbox and number two or number three in Billboard, I can't remember. But it was our biggest record, actually. I think it sold close to two million copies. So uh, it, it, was, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Well, it's, it's a rare thing when you'll hear somebody say, Thank heavens for Boise, Idaho, but uh, I will in this instance. <laughs> well, I certainly will. <laughs> Absolutely. Changed my life. Thank you, whoever yeah. you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, Colin, thank you so much for, for coming on and being able to chat with us today. I appreciate it, and I really look forward to uh, to the tour next year, and hopefully we'll be able to, to see you out here uh, on the, the West Coast soon. Okay, John, it's been great chatting to you. Do come to the show uh, when, when we're up your way, and it would be great to, to have a chat. I've really enjoyed it this evening, so thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast. You can listen to the music mentioned in this podcast by clicking the Spotify link in the description or by searching The SCORE on Spotify. Please take a moment to leave a review and share the podcast with your friends and family. For more exclusive interviews and playlists, subscribe to the SCORE Music and Sports Podcast now.